0: Good afternoon, everyone. It's Monday, and you know what that means. Another episode of Into the Looking Glass Darkly with your host, Dave Oscuro slaving over a hot microphone. I'm here today to do something a little bit different with today's episode. I I know I've done this in the past and I've certainly done this, um, in my previous podcast when we were doing more movie conversation, but I thought it'd be really fun to reach out to some former alumni of the show or future alumni of the show or listeners to send me questions, their inquiries, their quandaries, so that I might have an opportunity to examine them, to offer my perspective, uh, to hopefully answer them satisfactorily. And I thought it would be cool because we're in the middle of Thanksgiving and Christmas. And if you celebrate Thanksgiving, I hope that you had a wonderful time with your friends and your family and yummy food. And that you took the day to give gratitude for all the abundance that you have in your life. And, and the holiday season in December, which can constitute Christmas and uh, the solstice and uh, Hanukkah and Kwanzaa. And many, many people celebrate togetherness and sharing and appreciation during these winter months and so i thought i would do the same i will show my appreciation my appreciation my thanks to you our listeners for supporting us for listening for always making me excited to come back and record a new episode and share someone's story i thought it'd be fun to hear in a way your story Through these questions. And so what I did is I removed the names of who's asking the question. So we'll put these sort of anonymously. There's 10 questions. And I did that because sometimes it's easier to identify with a question when you feel like it could have been you who asked. And there may be many of you who hear these questions and and you have the same thought and maybe would like uh, someone to expand upon it or offer a new perspective that you might not be aware of. So I'm going to do my best to do that. It's always a little different when I do a podcast sort of solo because part of the fun of this, of course, is the back and forth. It's the listening to someone's story. It's it's the retorts. It's the uh, offering your insights to add upon what they're saying. So this is going to be a little bit different, but I think it's going to be very fun and I hope you all appreciate it and I hope you all had a wonderful show. So without further ado, the mailbag for today's episodes. So I guess I mentioned earlier, there's 10 questions. I've removed the names and I've ordered them in a way that I think is going to make the most sense to answer. But really, I haven't spent a lot of time delving too deeply into these uh, ahead of time. I like to sort of say stream of conscious. I like to sort of keep my answers as authentic as possible without overthinking them or trying to craft or formulate the perfect response this is just me speaking from my heart to you my wonderful audience so question number one do you have any holiday traditions what are they does your wife have any that she's shared with you so for those who you don't know justice from australia and i don't i'll tackle the last part of the question first i can't off the top of my head think of a holiday that they celebrate that we don't here in america it's quite. I mean, they have stuff like boxer Boxing Day um, and and some national holidays, what have you. But but in general, you know, they don't celebrate Thanksgiving. Uh, at least not in the same way that we do, not at the same time. Obviously, that's a very specific American holiday. Same thing with Halloween. It is gaining a little bit more um, prominence there. It's becoming a bit more trendy and popular there. But for the most part, they seem to have less holidays in Australia than we do and i don't know if any of that's connected to the um very consistent weather patterns there it's generally very top topical tropical and so uh maybe topical i don't know um and so i i think that might play a role in it so i can't think of any specific holidays that i didn't already practice that she would have shared with me that being said as far as the holiday traditions that i follow um firstly i so when i and We'll expand upon this later. When I first got into magic or alternative spirituality, I did attempt to try other traditions. I I try to celebrate the sabbats. I try to um, learn more about them and follow those traditions. And to be honest with you, I kind of felt like a poser most of the time. I'm not a witch and and I'm not a pagan, so those holidays don't really speak to me in the same way that they do other people. And in fact, there was a person, I I think it was during, um, Samhain. I was trying to do some sort of Samhain ritual and the person whom I was dating at the time, who was much more of an experienced, uh, while she was a witch and more experienced in that, in that regard. Um, kind of mocked me for it because, you know, when you're new to something, you kind of stumble through it and, and you're awkward and you're, you're, you're looking online to find what to do and what not to do. And, you know, you're going to make mistakes because it's not in, you know, intrinsically what you would normally do. So, um, I honestly have just gone back to celebrating the holidays that I grew up with and predominantly Christmas and, uh, Thanksgiving and Halloween. Those would be the, the, the big three. Um, I don't celebrate Easter. I don't really celebrate um, 4th of July or anything like that. Maybe May Day. But, you know, for the most part, I, I kind of just follow tra- you know, birthdays. I kind of just um, follow the traditional holidays that I grew up with because I feel like the most important part of the holiday is less about. Well, and certainly people would argue this, right? The, the the Jesus is the reason for the season, folks, would certainly probably argue this point. But to me, the most important thing about these holidays is is the memories that have been formed around them and the community that, that they lend themselves to bring together. And for me, growing up Catholic and celebrating the, the standard Christian holidays, uh, that's where my memories lie. That's where my... My emotions lie, you know, and as far as the the individual traditions within that, you know, the smell of a Christmas tree evokes a, a, a memory of warmth and love and togetherness the smell of uh i'm vegan so i all of my thanksgiving food is plant based but the smell of like a tofurkey um uh, or or a fuel roast or mashed potatoes all those things it's very bland and boring as far if you're looking for something more spicy that i celebrate but i i just don't i'm very i'm very traditionalist in that manner and I, I like to keep it pretty simple the one thing i have added is i have in the last few years devoted more attention to dias las marthas um, it's a weird holiday because it's not really rooted in Mexico as much as people think that it is. It's really very much an Amer- Mexican American holiday, to my understanding, or at least a border holiday, uh, to my understanding. But and you, obviously, the, its popularity has really increased since movies like Coco have come out and and movies that that sort of highlight uh, you know the Disneyfication of of a certain holiday. But I do like the idea of using that time period when the veil is thinnest to show remembrance for those who have passed, um, showed love for those who have passed, try to connect with them and hear them and have them guide you. Um, if you're open to that. So that, I guess that I've added uh, in more recently in the last five, six years, but for the most part, I'm just pretty much a traditionalist in terms of, um, you know, Christian holidays and Catholic holidays and things I grew up with. I just, and it's something that if I have kids, I'll probably pass along as well. There's, I don't, think that you have to believe that Jesus Christ is the savior to celebrate Christmas. I don't think most people who celebrate Christmas believe that anymore, even if they are Christian. Um, And so I use them more as markers, especially this time period, which is my favorite time period of the year between October and February. I use them as markers to remind me to be very appreciative of everything around me. And, and even nature sort of acts in a way to reinforce that. As I was walking home from the gym, the leaves have started falling. And if you're familiar with, uh, you know, Southern California, we don't have a lot of leaves that fall and turn colors out here, but we have some. And when I find those, it, it's the same kind of feeling as smelling that field roast or smelling that Christmas tree or seeing Christmas lights, um, you know, feeling a cool breeze. I'm, I'm very much based. Most of my, my celebrations around nature and traditions that i have felt and their christian you know origin assuming really that it is a christian origin and not a a borrowed uh tradition from pagan um, ancestry i i i just think that that's what the most important part is the way it makes me feel and the way it makes me appreciate things so that's kind of where i come from when it comes to holidays Uh, i think that there are i've heard once from a, a mentor of mine that when you grow in magic you're supposed to develop your own holidays to celebrate or, and and to me, maybe perhaps, and, or to find your own meanings behind the holidays. So whether that's um, Hanukkah or whether that's uh, the, the Sabbaths or whether that's, you know, uh, Christmas, I think the most important part for all of us is to try to find something that actually means something to us, not just to go through the motions, but to really take from it something that makes us feel, more alive and more appreciative that we're alive. And I think that if we do that, we open ourselves up to some pretty amazing experiences uh, with our friends and family. So uh, I don't know if that's exactly the answer you're looking for, but I hope it's a satisfactory answer and that's what I'm going to go with. And so with that, which I think is a good springboard kind of talking about holidays, the next question says, thusly, how did you get into magic and the occult? And, And to that, I would say I... I it's really been part of a long a lifelong journey, and I'm I'm sure that I've talked about this in snippets in previous episodes. But as I mentioned earlier, I was raised uh, Catholic in South Texas, and as a young person, in retrospect, as an old person looking back, as a to me as when I was a young person, there is certainly a um, reverence for certain moments of my childhood, and you know being. Uh, going through like um, catechism and uh, receiving communion for the first time, um, even even like the, my priests at the church that we went to, Father David. I don't even know if the gentleman is alive any longer. Um, but uh, he, the humor he would use in the sermons, the um, you know the the church that we went to most frequently, the church that I was baptized in was called Most Precious Blood, and that was near my dad's so house. My parents split when I was young, but for the most part. My recollection is more geared towards uh, St. Joseph's, which is on the west side of my hometown, which is uh, if you're in the Los Angeles area, it's sort of like East L.A. or it's a predominantly Mexican area. And so they would have sermons in both English and Spanish and more often than not, because I'm not a Spanish speaker. We went to the English version, but it it, it was very it was very much a setting of my culture as a Mexican-American growing up. And so all of this is things I can appreciate now as a 41 going on 42 year old. And, but, but if I'm being real, when I was growing up and I was a kid, that's just the thing that my parents made me do. And I didn't really love it. And I got bored a lot and, you know, daydream and what have you. And at some point in my childhood growing up, my mom said, I think I must've been 13, maybe 14. She said, you don't have to go to church anymore. I want you to go to church, but you don't have to. Um, That's your decision. Um, I would like you to go somewhere to, to have some form of spirituality, but it doesn't have to be mass. And so I think, I probably floundered a little bit between not going and going for a couple years. But in the meantime, one of the ways, because again, where I grew up is kind of a, a rough, rough and tough area. And and certainly there's a lot of gangs and a, a good chunk of my friends at that age were in some former gang. And so to keep me out of it, one thing that mom did is she would send me to this summer camp week long, only a week, but it was a summer camp. Uh, that was run by a denomination called Church of Christ, and uh, my mom's mailman, who was uh, friends with her and and my stepfather, who was a mailman, um, he he belonged to this church and he told my mom about it. And so it was a good opportunity for me to just get away and do something else. And you know, a, a lot of amazing stuff actually came from that summer camp. I may I met the former lead singer of two of my uh, one of my bands, J C uh, no, no, no relation to Jesus, uh, at summer camp. And through JC, I met, um, two of my very close friends who have been on the podcast many times, Christopher and Jason, who have their own amazing podcast called the regrettable century. If I'd never gone to this church camp, I'd never met them. I might not have been in bands. We might not have been done podcast together. I might not have, you know, 20 odd plus year you know, best friends. So lots of great stuff came from it. But well, the other thing that came from it to go back to your question is, um, it was kind of like well I don't know I can't believe I'm going to draw this comparison but it was kind of like if you grew up listening to classic rock because classic rock was like your parents music and then you heard something that was way more stripped down than that and I I hate to equate it to punk rock because that's really not accurate but just imagine something stripped away from all the bells and whistles of you know it's like it's like listening to um ziggy stardust versus uh you know david bowen and his glass spider tour you know there's just there's a there's a, a stripped down aspect of the church of christ uh one of which is that they don't allow music everything is a cappella, which is kind of lame to some degree but it's kind of cool in another way because when you're a young you know, person who's going through um, adolescence and you find something that seems like all the bells and whistles have been removed and you're at the core of something, that can be pretty powerful, especially when you see the way it affects other people. So from, I would guess, around the age of 15 or 16 through my first year in university, which would have taken me to about 19, I went to Church of Christ. I got re-baptized um, within the Church of Christ uh system so i felt very double protected like double bagged um as far as you know jesus is concerned and and so i did that for a while but when i went to university i found that that um i I just it's lame it's it is actually quite lame and that feeling of awe that i felt because i just think it was different i think what i was really being drawn to is just the difference between that and uh catholicism i as the longer I was in it, it's just like anything else. It just you start to see the warts, right? It's almost like entering into a new relationship. Every relationship, every new relationship, seems shiny until you get to you get to really know the person, and then you realize they may have the same flaws as anyone else because we're human, right? And any any sort of institution built by humans is going to have those same inherent flaws. So, around the age of nineteen, I dropped out of that, and I decided that that was not for me. I, I remember one year. Um, well, one year I was only in that university for a year before I went back home, but I was going to go home for Christmas break and I'd broken Well, my girlfriend, and I had broken up the summer before I went to university and I, I, you know, as a young person, I was very emotional over the matter. And I remember my, my dorm mates held a prayer circle type gimmick for me so that I wouldn't be tempted by, um, i wouldn't I wouldn't be drawn to the temptations of the flesh while I was uh uh going back home and uh that's not me if anyone knows me knows that I am not that person um so i I bailed out that was my signal that was my uh oh moment if you've ever seen the movie Alfie that was my uh oh moment when doormates are telling me or trying to pray so that I don't like find the the opposite sex attractive that's not my bag, so I left that now. I never became an atheist. A lot of people do as, especially if they have trauma with their previous um, relationship with whatever religion they were, they were raised in. I never really was. I, I always sort of oscillated between being agnostic and um, kind of believing that God was the force with frankly speaking. I still do. Uh, so I dabbled in, I, I dabbled in Buddhism, reading about Buddhism, learning about Buddhism, um, never I wouldn't ever say that I was an active practitioner of it; more of an admirer of it. Much like the the way I feel about um, worshiping other gods or 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 celebrating the Sabbats, it's just not something that resonates with me. Um, well, culturally, right? I, the, the the core concepts absolutely do, but culturally. It's very. It's just too foreign for me. I think for me to really embrace in the way that I feel like I need to embrace it, and that's that is not any shortcomings on the f- on on the belief um, or the philosophy in and of itself. I think that's really me being born in in a in a town where travel is not really a huge thing and cultures pretty homogenized in a lot of ways, and um, I just didn't have maybe now I would appreciate it differently because I'm I'm much more traveled now but at the time certainly I didn't so I dabbled in that for a while and then I went to a club well I will say this there there was always some overlap with the idea of uh, witchcraft but again I didn't really know where to start with that so when i went to this club called cloak and dagger which was here in in los angeles that was a sort of a private goth club dark club they didn't call themselves goth they they used to do ceremonies they used to do rituals for the, the the dancing crowd which now again in retrospect i'm not pulling a judgment but i think that i would probably have some ethical questions about doing a ritual with non-practitioners or different practitioners because i i don't know what kind of magic they were using i assume it was probably either thelemic or some version of the golden dawn or a hodgepodge of it all but again a little bit more experience i would draw questions to that in a mass setting with non-consenting um uh, people being a part of it but that being said it definitely drove my interest in magic with the k and like i mentioned earlier and talking about the uh how i celebrate holidays i dabbled in witchcraft and sabbaths and trying to learn but i found that i witchcraft for me is just, there's just so many versions of it that i got overwhelmed and i couldn't find a solid source and maybe if i'd had someone who could have guided me i might have found it more appealing to me and i think one of the there was one point when there was one person who tried to start sort of a coven to teach a bunch of like fledglings to learn witchcraft. And through that, I met a really great friend of mine who I hope to get on the podcast at some point, but um, nothing really came of it beyond a couple of, a couple of meetings, which is oftentimes the case in Los Angeles. I think one of the problems, if you're trying to figure out where your spiritual spirituality lies, if you live here where I live is that people are pretty flaky you know lots of people get into things or talk about things or have big ideas and then there's very little follow through um and i don't know if that's born from there just being so many things to do in los angeles or there's just an inherent flakiness egregore built into this town because there is um but i so you know from 19 to i would say honestly 2019 so we're really talking about 19 no uh yeah, no, yeah. So so probably from around to the year 2000 till the year 2019, so 19 20 years somewhere in that range, 18 years, I just sort of never stopped totally believing in a supreme divine source but never really found a home. I I I tried some coats on, none were a good fit and it really wasn't until I picked up um Damien Echols' book High Magic, that I, I really found the kind of pathway that I liked and that resonated with me. I had been familiar with Damien since uh, obviously from the West Memphis Three. I had seen his documentaries, the documentaries about him and the other two lads when I was in high school. and I picked up his book uh, that he that he'd written coming right out of prison and the book that him and Lori had. Uh, had had, um, published there was a collection of letters that they'd written each other back and forth so I already had some of his books as far as his time and his experience in prison but it was so that familiarity led me to pick the book up I thought it was very interesting Um, I saw some of his YouTube videos Uh, there was a YouTube video where he guided the LBRP and that for whatever and maybe it's because ceremonial magic in some ways shares an aesthetic likeness to Catholicism that bred familiarity. I I've often said, and I don't think he'd take offense to this, that I, I think Damien is sort of the um, Hemingway of, of magic book writers. He's very to the point. He's very, he doesn't, there's not a lot of fluff or, or weird unicorns or dragons on the covers of his books. It's very straightforward. This is for practical use, and I love that because that just speaks to my sentiment, and and through his books and um his Patreon, which I certainly recommend for people who are interested in astrotheurgy. Um, I, I I found myself growing in in uh, uh wanting to immerse myself in all aspects of magic. So I've picked up several books from then on that I've read. I'm currently reading one by John Michael Greer, who I also recommend. Um, Donald Michael Craig has a fantastic book called Modern Magic. So there. So I just found to me that astrotheurgy and ceremonial magic in general speaks to me. I also very briefly dabbled in Thelema. And once again, not judgment call, but it's not for me. I think there's an, there's, and I don't know how much of this is associated with the religion itself, um, maybe it all stems from some. It's from its maestro, but I feel like there's sort of, um, for me only, an, an inherent sort of edge lordiness, sort of ingrained in Thelema that I I had a hard time reconciling. And also, one of the things that I I found as I've progressed through my magical journey is that I don't want to be part of something that seems solely centered around sex. And Once again, if you know me, that might seem strange, but like sometimes I do feel like magicians who dabble in other kinds of practices do so so they can get to sex magic or orgies or whatever they think that that's taking them. And again, I, I don't want to say that I don't want to imprint this on on Thelema solely because there's probably, I'm sure Lon, uh, Lon Milo Duquette would would uh draw and feather me draw and quarter me and tar and feather me for saying such blasphemous stuff but i do just think that as i scoured through ceremonial magic what i found is that sometimes some of the faiths seem very centered around being very edgy uh very um sexual and everything driving from sexuality solely. And I think that that's one component, but just like anything else in life, if you overindulge in any one area, just like with your elementals, it's it's probably going to throw you out of balance. And that's usually more often than not as chaotic and detrimental. So, um, especially for me, who, who I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, I always feel like I'm teetering on the edge of a sex addiction to begin with, especially with like pornography and things of that nature, that I'm very, very careful these days about indulging too much of that and it's it's listen it is absolutely a a teetering for me um but but i i find that in the type of magic that i practice regularly that it's really about balance and it's really about um spiritual substance and not things of the material plane like sex or belongings or abundance or followers on Twitter or Patreon subscriptions or any of that bullshit. Like I have no interest in any of that. So uh, I may be digressing just a bit, but I, I just wanted to point out that my magical journey has really been about finding something that fit me rather than joining it for any other purposes. Like it's very much to me a very intimate, a very personal experience and one that I would equate with finding that right outfit or that right partner or that right thing, that right place of of residence, that thing that makes you feel like home. That's what I've found in astrotheurgy and ceremonial magic. Um, And so that's, that's how I kind of came to it. I, I really, it was really just, I think an existential drive within me to figure out a way to make sense of the world around myself and my place in it and how to elevate myself beyond the mundane, which I've, I just think I'm not built to ever accept. And so I found something that matched me and I found it in astrotheurgy and in ceremonial magic. So I hope that that answers your question. Um, Like I said, I want to be careful about being too critical of other things. I just want to say for me that's how it made me feel that's why i kind of shied away from some of those more sex magic centric faiths because that to me is like an alcoholic going into a bar so i gotta be real careful with that stuff all right next question when something you cherish becomes mainstream and over commercialized what is the best way to maintain its original magic and meaning in your life it's a perfect question for me, an old punk rocker, because you know, growing up, you always had Blink One Eighty Two or or Green Day or whomever. Less than Jake would would sign or rancid would sign to like a major label, and then there was inevitably the whole like, you know, you're selling out, you you corporate, you're under the corporate machine, et cetera. And so, um, you know, when I was younger, I would say that that bothered me a lot that there was this idea of maintaining purity or a genuineness that that going mainstream could sully like there's something sort of pure when things stay intimate and that can that can easily get sullied or lose some of its luster as it becomes uh, a trend fashion you know here's a great example um joy division one of my favorite bands of all time you can go to any uh hot topic or forever 21 or uh, h&m or any of those like you know fast food clothing stores and get the unknown pleasures t-shirt and you don't need to love the music you don't need to know the music you don't need to do anything it's a fashion choice so i've definitely recognized that and look the older you get the more things are going to get popularized and when things i i've i've have said this quote before I borrowed it from, I think it was from Joe Rogan of all things talk about vegans, which is, you know, usually you would think would not be something I'd want to hear. But, um, in explaining veganism, he said that if anything, any belief or philosophy or way of life is open to anyone, then inevitably you're going to get assholes that join the group. And those people tend to be the loudest and the most obnoxious and they try to become the figurehead of the thing that they've joined, whether or not they represent the greater um, sentiment of the group. And in my experience, they oftentimes don't. So I think that's kind of what you're saying. Like when when you believe in something or you want something, and because you use the term magic, I'm gonna I'm gonna use magic as an example. One of the things that I noticed, which is both good and bad, is that. A lot of the stuff I learned, like without the internet, I wouldn't probably have found magic in the same way that I did. And in the beginning, I think all people go through this where you're seeking community and you're seeking other people like you. You get drawn online, you get drawn to Twitter, you get drawn to other accounts that practice a hodgepodge. You know, it's like that term, the the, the term of the occult is such an umbrella term that really means nothing. Because you know, witchcraft isn't ceremonial magic. Shit, within ceremonial magic, you have Thelema, you have Golden Dawn, you have uh, theurgy you have a billion. There's like a million different offshoots of this, all with like, you know, a thousand people that belong to each one of them. So it's all very, it's all very splintered in that manner. But it somehow, for whatever reason, gets sort of thrown under this umbrella as the occult, which essentially just means non-Christian or non-Jewish, maybe non-non-Muslim. But but that's about as far as it it really. Extends over any of these things. Some of these things are vastly different and, and contradictory um, belief systems. So I, the reason I bring that up is because I got a little um, jaded after a while of seeing some of the behaviors of some of the people who had very popular Twitter accounts. And I kind of asked myself, is magic something I want to continue to do if this is the way it makes people behave? Because I don't want to behave like that. This is the way I was behaving before I got into magic, getting into Twitter arguments, which I still do too often, but I try not to. I I just thought to myself, like if this is the end goal from experienced magicians of, of being mean girls on Twitter, then maybe this isn't for me. But what I had to recognize with myself, and this is true for magic or music or movies that's a big one that i could talk about for days things that you like like I'll, I'll give another example when people will say oh they're gonna do i don't know the crow they're gonna remake the crow and um the the crow for many people is a classic film myself included i don't know how you would even begin to try to um do a performance of eric draven after the performance that that brendan lee did he, he he owns that role in the same way that that heath ledger owned the joker in the dark knight but to to use to continue on that example um i thought that there would never be someone who could do the joker um a service to the right do its due service other than heath ledger and then the joker movie came out and uh, Joaquin Phoenix did his portrayal. And it's fantastic. So I guess what I'm going to going at is that. Who cares? In the end, if something means something to you, it doesn't matter what anyone else does with it. If 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 we don't have to share every aspects of our life, says the guy who's doing a personal podcast for all the Internet to here, um, we don't. Have to share everything, and we don't have to go along with how everyone else views something. So, if it's something that you enjoy, it's yours, and no one can take that away. And yes, it might be annoying that like some person, some you know, I don't know, tech nerd, Elon Musk type is wearing an unknown pleasure shirt with his with his Jordans, and you know, yeah, sure, that stuff's annoying, I guess. But like, who who cares? In the end. If you love that album, you love that album. If you love The Crow, don't watch the sequel if it's not of interest to you. doesn't ruin your experience. I mean, at worst, it might ruin, like, at worst, what might happen is you'll want to talk about The Crow, and everyone's going to talk about the new movie that you have no interest in. Fine. You know what? Find other friends who appreciate the same things that you do. I've I, As I've gotten older, I've I've really stopped caring more and more what people think about me and how they judge me and also what they do so if you cherish something it's yours it belongs to you it's in your heart when you tell your kids one day or your your nieces and nephews or what have you about this great experience you saw like i don't know seeing afi live who gives a fuck who gives a fuck if if it if it's a, a a shell of its former self because that moment Or those moments that meant so much to you—they never go away. They are forever within you, for as long as you allow them to be. So, as long as you allow them to be that, and you just block out whatever the rest of the world is doing, I found that it's so relieving to stop caring what the what the rest. Sorry, I hit the microphone. What the rest of the world? We're gonna do it live. What the rest of the world uh, is—how they view things that you love, because that's their opinion and it's got its own validity perhaps or or it doesn't but it has no bearing on whether or not you like something or doesn't like something now if the example more specifically is something that you and okay i'm just gonna make something like axe throwing i'm i'm a big axe throwing fan like sharp objects like loud noises like beer okay right now axe throwing has become very trendy and popular so you know look it might be a kind of thing where like you normally would go to your local axe throwing range and you'd always have an a lane open for you and it it gets popular in the mainstream and a bunch of chads start showing up and like the lanes are full that could happen for sure And, and and if that happens if that's the kind of thing you're talking about then in that instance you know that sucks but all things must pass and as I've been around in this earth long enough to see a lot of trends come and go, and in every instance, there's some. There seems to almost be some form of equilibrium. It doesn't mean the equilibrium is better than it was before, but it does balance out. So, if if the if the popularity, if the mainstream popularity of something is making it difficult for you to enjoy it because of uh, practical purposes, like you know lanes being filled or what have you, or just the environment not being as fun keep looking because there's probably someone who's maintained that integrity that you're looking for. And if it's just a matter of, let's say, for example, magic, people are taking something that you consider to be very personal and very meaningful in your life and you see them wield it like a widget or a way to become popular or famous, which is one of the most grotesque terms I can possibly think of, then fuck them. Who cares? Don't worry about that. The, what people do in their own time should not and have as much of an effect on us as I think more often than not we, we tend to allow it and I think part of that's because of the over-reliance on social media I think some of that is um, the bombardment of the way It's the the spectacle sells the stuff back to us. And I can certainly understand why it can create a a sort of a a disillusionment over the thing that you used to be passionate about, but it doesn't have to be. You are allowed to love something in its original form in whatever way it was meaningful to you. And nobody has the right to take that away. And they can't. They physically can't. It's an idea. It's a feeling. It's within you. The only thing that can change it is your response to it. So let go, block it out, hold what you deem um, cherishable close to your heart and it will always be that for you no matter what happens in the rest of the world because give it long enough and that mainstream popularity, it's going to cycle off. It'll happen for magic. It'll happen for joy division. It'll happen for the crow. It'll happen for whatever other examples I give. At some point, the trendy thing today is going to be the forgotten a uh, 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 quirky thing of that time period you know like if you ever go out on YouTube and you watch those like crazy things from the 80s like at some point that thing that you love that's mainstream now is going to be one of those things so don't worry about it love it it's yours no one can take that away from you don't worry about what other people are doing that's a big advice just generally alright next question <laughs> Do you think incorporating electronic technology into ritual magic beyond music players or light bulbs light space will become more or less frequent over time? Examples would be salt circles around self-driving cars, using AI bots for magical art or sigils, or, or including medical gear like EKJs, etc., This is a fascinating question. And by the way, the person who asked this question, I desperately want to have on this podcast soon because she's a very intelligent and very insightful person. And I would love to hear more about and expand on some of these ideas, but I'll do my best solo as much as I can at the moment. Um, If you haven't seen Google Salt Circle around self-driving cars for a fun little, um, I don't know if it's an experiment or if it's sort of an art display, but... People took a self-driving car and they drew a salt circle around them in the same pattern as a street where there was a solid white line and and, uh, that formed a circle. And then there was a, a broken up circle like you see in driving lanes, but in a circular pattern. And it kept the car from going forward. Now. The reality of it is, is that it the car is picking up the pattern that replicates uh, that that replicates the patterns on our on our streets, and that's really the reason why the car was not able to go forward. But it's an interesting experiment, nevertheless, and a very fun one. So, and so to answer the question, I absolutely think it will increase, for two reasons. Number one, I find that the modern generation of, uh, especially younger magical practitioners are more open and keen to using technology because they've grown up knowing technology in ways even more so than myself. You know, I didn't get the internet till I was 18 or 19. I didn't get a smartphone until I was uh, 2009. Social media didn't really hit its peak until that same era, which would have put me in my late 20s. So um, I think people who are 10, 15, 20 years younger than me who, who've who grown up with tech, that kind of technology being a bigger part of their lives at an earlier age are going to be more open to utilizing it as a tool. And one of the examples, I don't have the name of it off the top of my head, I'm sorry, but there is there there is or was, uh, hopefully still is, this website where you could go in and it would, it would um, ia-generate... Where a computer generate a, a, a sigil for you. You type in whatever your sigil intention is, and it would draw it. Boom! You could print it. You could do whatever you want with it. You could do ritual with it, etc. I think that um, I've seen one of my one of my good friends uh, who has a, a ko-fi, Mage of Aquarius, does some really fantastic psychedelic AI generated art. That's very very cool. Um, I don't feel super strongly. Be passionate about NFTs, but I had an episode of the show with my friend Bobby where we discussed uh, whether or not the usage of blockchain in magic is something that will grow in prominence and what the ramifications of using a ritual in a blockchain form might have. Uh, so I, I definitely feel like there is certainly people who will look to you i mean it's already happening right um social media is a technology uh the 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 software that i'm using to record this podcast is a technology so i definitely think that's going to occur the the question i think becomes how long over time are we talking about because one of the it's an interesting thing because one thing that i have found more frequently amongst magic practitioners is maybe not quite neo, uh, Lenitism, but there's, there seems to be a concurrent theme of this, not a, not an outright rejection of technology, but, but definitely, um, a weariness and perhaps a, a, um, Oh, how do I say this? I think a lot of people are starting to not only become like worn out by technology, but very weary about where it's going. And I think that a lot of, or maybe even where it's at. And I think a lot of people are trying to return to nature or simplify their lives. I, I certainly think that the longer one practices magic, the more simplifying one tends to want to be. That's at least my experience. I can't speak for others. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think part of that has to do with Egregore's, who you learn from and and what their beliefs are and that current of magic and what has traditionally been heaped upon it. Um, is it a very experimental kind of a a practice or is it more of a traditional type? I do think that that matters as to whether or not technology will continuously be used or not. Um, the other thing that I want to mention is that my mentor mentor, my mentor's mentor, has once said to him and my mentors often repeated it that the goal of a magic is to be dropped buck naked in the middle of the woods with nothing and you being able to use magic to get yourself out that's the level of strength behind magical practice we all strive for you know the another common saying is um i think again passed down from mentor to mentor is that in magic we buy all these tools we have wands we have tarot cards we have um light balls to light rooms based on the correspondences of the entities that we're evoking etc 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 but a, a true master magician can do more magic twisting the ring on their finger than all the gimmicks in the world that a that a um neophyte would would utilize just because of their connection to the that those divine energies so i i do think it's twofold i i think for an older crowd and perhaps a certain sect of a certain kind of ritualized magic i think we'll see less of it i think people will continue to try to simplify their lives i think that they'll stop be stop being so engaged by the newest technology to incorporate into their work and they will try to minimize, simplify, and condense into the bare basics. That being said, I think magic is an inherently an experimental practice. And when you, you know, like I'd heard about the uh, the self driving car in the salt ritual, I absolutely use music. I just as an aside, when I do my magic rituals, I, I've I've oscillated through all kinds of different types of music. And non-music. I've done movie scores. Uh, Gladiator makes a fantastic score if you want to do magic. Uh, But here lately, what I've been using is um, Gregorian chants. Really into that. Um, Anything, again, goes back to my Catholic upbringing. Those things are meaningful to me. They hold reverence in my heart. So I utilize music in that fashion when I'm doing ritual work. Um, I... Use light circles occasionally, especially when I'm in my temple shed outside that needs desperately needs cleaning. But um, when you're working with certain correspondences, especially, it's really useful. But, I mean, more often than not, I don't even use my wand hardly at all. I usually use a sword mantra, just a sort of a finger configuration with my hand. So I do think that um, certain people like me will probably use technology less, but I, but everything I just listed was me experimenting. I've, I've done ritual high. I've done ritual, not high. I do ritual daytime. I do ritual in the nighttime in the afternoon. I do ritual with music. I do ritual without music with different kinds of music. I use, I do it uh, where in, in full ceremonial robe, I do it in whatever my street clothes are. I do barefoot. I do it non barefoot. I've experimented in my ritual practice in a, in a variety of ways to find the thing that works for you. And so um, like I was noting earlier, like I was familiar with the the sort of self-driving car thing. Uh, I'm familiar with the light thing. But what I had, what was really piqued my interest was uh, the reference to the EKG, EKG, EKGs uh, and medical equipment. And I never thought of that really before. And I know that some people use this this, this special kind of film to capture auras i've seen that i don't recall the name i'm sure someone knows um and they can message me on twitter which i'm i can be found at davis but um but I, I think again magic is inherently an experimental philosophy and practice and so i i encourage people to try new technologies not all technologies is the internet i, I if if you want to want to hook an EKG up to yourself while you're doing a magical ritual to, to know, and to document how it changes your, your heart rhythm. I mean, that's, that's fascinating and awesome and really exciting to even think about the ramifications of that. Um, I'm reading a book currently called, um, I don't have it with me. I'm paused I don't want to leave the room for it, but it's basically, I'll, I'll post it on Twitter again at Dave Oscuro so people can follow it, but it, it, it highlights the difference between pseudoscience and science and not in a judgmental way, not saying inherently that pseudoscience is bunk and science is the truth, but more like the classifications between what's actually considered a science and what's not. And it's really interesting because some things are in, in magic are scientific in that they can be experimented on and they can be, you could document the the results and you could, you could, retry the the experiment over time to see if it changes, if if you change, if it changes you, how it makes you feel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's why journaling is important and I'm terrible at journaling, but I'm endeavoring to start this all over again and do this right this time. Um so all of that to be said is while I do think that for many people as they get older their reliance on on tools will will in theory Reduce. I also think that it would be foolish to not take advantage of this time period when there is so much technological advancement and see how those things can be incorporated into your practice. We may not often think of candles as technology, but at some point they were new and they were used, not only to light your space, but in your practice, in your ritual practice. So, I think that um, it's both. I think that they they will be used, and I think that really creative people will find interesting ways to use the technology beyond its most obvious application. I hope that answers the question. It's a little it's a little uh, split tongued, but I I think that that's the best way to explain it, at least from my perspective. Next one, I'm really excited to answer this one. Well, I'm actually excited to answer all of these, but. It seems as though every day the U.S. is creeping closer and closer to a holy war between evangelical, Christo, whatever, and everyone else. What do you think the best way for regular folks to try and combat it? Okay, so first off, uh, love and respect. I'm going to say that I think that part of this sentiment comes from spending too much time on, on social media and watching the news. I do not think that there's a holy war between evangelicals and everyone else for many reasons. Number one, um, if you look at studies, evangelical Christianity has actually declined pretty considerably over the years. Um, my dad sent me an article a couple years ago, maybe a year ago, eh, a couple years ago, that was talking about this very phenomenon that the evangelical hold over the Republican Party has rapidly decreased and that church attendances in traditional um, uh, institutions has declined year after year after year. The simple fact of the matter is, is that people are becoming more secular with every passing year and or they're moving to alternative spirituality. You could look at articles that also talk about the rise of witchcraft, which I'm sure they group all non, you know, all occult, quote unquote, esoteric practices as witchcraft. But the the stats and the data suggest that in fact there are less evangelicals than ever before, and that more people are secular and or believe in in alternative spirituality, than than more in more recent time at minimum. So that being said, why is it that we feel this way? What what is it about? Because your your feelings aren't um they're not dismissible because they're they're genuine and they're they're for a reason. And I think that part of the reason is that in the world of social media. And in mainstream news, in particular, um, they're they're driving There is a there was a drive to divide, and I think that you know I, I've said this these stats before. I'm, they may have altered since last time I looked them up, but roughly speaking, if you look at Twitter, Twitter makes up the, the amount of Americans on Twitter is roughly around twenty to twenty two percent. Twenty to twenty two percent of Americans own a Twitter. are active on Twitter, 11% of Americans, if 22 own one, half of that is are actually open, or active users on it. And of that, uh, and of the total 1% of the entire US population drives the vast majority of conversation. So 1% are, are starting all the conversations. And then you got like another 9% or so that respond actively. They're engaged actively. And then you've got like another 10% who are like, ah, I, I check in every once in a while to see if Chris Hemsworth or, or Jason Momoa's posted a thirst trap and then they log off. So I bring that up because what seems like something that's representative of the larger society as a whole is actually a very, very small slice sample size of society. The majority of Twitter are middle-aged, white-collar, college-educated, democratic males. That that demographic makes up the vast majority of Twitter users. So you have to really consider... Or white. Did I mention that? Yeah, also that. So you got to really consider that you're getting a very, very narrow, loud, and obnoxious a very narrow sample size of an opinion that is meant to represent the larger world as a whole, much less, I mean, the U.S., much less the world. So I think, and, and, and you know, and, and, and the media, which has just fallen in love with Twitter because it, it, it makes them shirk the responsibility as journalists even more so than they were before, because now we've gone from a 24-hour news cycle to a 24-second news cycle. So I they, they're, they're complicit in the same sort of manipulation to make us believe that we're all at each other's throats we're not also here's the other thing the world is not divided by christians and everyone else because you know that's sort of a discounting of um jewish faith of occult faith of uh, muslim faith faith of uh um uh, pagan faith of uh eastern philosophies The, the world is far more diverse than evangelical Christians, and then everyone else lump sum. Like you're gonna find the same kind of divides, I'm sure. If you talk to someone who practices, I don't know, witchcraft, uh, as you would someone who practices, you know, Catholicism. Depending on what the topic of matter is, so I, I I just want to caution you to not buy into this divide that like there's there's just like this this especially within the context of this being some sort of holy war, if what you're really talking about, it is a, as a divide between the left and the right. I don't think the right are nearly as holy or evangelical as you think that they are. And frankly speaking, I don't think the left as, as is as normal as you think they are modern day left and right are generally filled with a bunch of loud assholes who have, adopted identity and social politics as their sole source of what to argue about on the internet. And there's very little activism in the streets and there's very little reality to much of this division that we think that there is. I mean, the person who asked this is, uh, I think, older than me, um, but we're we're old enough to know and to have seen Democrats and Republicans come in and out of office. And frankly speaking, I think that it's, it's you can you can look at this empirically that the world is in a worse place than it was when we were growing up. You now it doesn't matter if it's a Democrat or Republican in office. We seemingly we've gotten to the same place. So I think the problem is that it's convenient for them to think have us at each other's throats, thinking that we're vastly different in our beliefs and that there's a a civil war or a holy war brewing. What is actually brewing? is a labor war, is a class war. That's where our attention should be focused on. The reality of it is is you have far more in common with your evangelical brother or sister than you do Elon Musk or Jeff Brazos or any of these assholes who own 1% of all the wealth in the entire world. 1% of, of, of American bureaucrats and technocrats and industry leaders they own equal amount of wealth to the entire rest of the population. And if you're fighting with someone over whether or not you can express your sexuality in this way or that way, or whether or not you're treated fairly because of the color of your skin, not that, not that those things aren't important because they are. They're very important. But they, they're they also a a... They're not only important because what do they mean to us personally, but they're also... Highly important because without those differences dominating the news and social media, we would perhaps turn our attention upwards to the top of the Ivy Towers to realize that we're getting fucked harder year after year and not in a good way by those 1% in power. The true war and the only war and the only battle that we should be focused on is class war because once we get past that, then we can turn our attention to other areas, which, again, does not mean that we shouldn't combat racism or, or bigotry in all of its forms along the way. We're human beings who have traveled to the moon and the cosmos. I'm sure we can multitask in our activism. But I think it's important to caution and to to, frankly, be the bearer of bad news that if we ever want to try to overcome the true oppressors of our society these corporate these corporations and these and the and their figureheads who are taking more and more wealth from us and putting it in their own pockets to so obscene obscene ghoulish levels you're going to have to partner with that person that you might find undesirable that person who might judge you based on your sexual expression is exactly the comrade that you will need to fight the real oppressors who You know, not only are just hoarding money from the rest of us, but actually have set up the institutions that that at least allow racism, bigotry, um, intolerance to thrive. There's this idea that it's human nature to be diverse, diversive, and I don't think that's the case. Because there's been many studies on children and how they behave with one another. And it it definitely seems to be a a nurturing, learned experience to divide. I mean, even from the earliest age, we're taught like to pick your favorite color, pick your favorite friend, pick your favorite this. Like that's a taught experience. And I think that if we really want to combat these issues, if we really want to get to a point where we accept one another, we listen to one another, we we, uh, uh, in good faith ponder and consider an opposing argument if we want to get to a place where where people are free to live their lives without fear of persecution or judgment we first have to address the larger component of what is the society and the institutions that are designed to divide us and allow this kind of hatred and bigotry to flourish in the first place i have spent some time talking to people who voted for donald trump I know one person, I think I've used this example before, who voted for Donald Trump because Bernie didn't get the election. Now, that's interesting, right? Like, you would think that Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders are two completely different—they stand at two different ends of the the ideological spectrum. But what they had in common was that they were addressing the fact that things weren't good in America, that that workers were being screwed over in America— because oftentimes what leads to bigotry is actually one's own fear. If you're, if you're afraid of starving, if you're afraid of scarcity, you might aim your blame towards someone who looks differently than you. Because it's certainly easier to blame a, a brown person or, or a woman or uh, uh, someone who's gay or, or trans person. It's way easier to blame them for your problems rather than the guy who owns billions of dollars that has the government in their back pocket, who owns the judges, who who the politicians simp for, that is like climbing Everest. So it's very easy for people to just blame the person that looks different than them or acts differently than them or has different culture or customs. It's not a holy war that we're facing. It's a class war. And I think that to answer your question more directly the best way for regular folks to try to combat it is to become is to lead with love lead with understanding and disarm them not with antagonism but with understanding it won't work for everyone but it works more often than I think most of us uh, are willing to do because it does involve suppressing one's ego and it does uh, involve us trying to understand something that feels so repulsive to us. But I think that if you do that more often not, you're going to find that the differences aren't as, as different as you think most people, the average person outside of social media and that sort of antagonism can from concentrate. Most people just want to live a happy life. They want love. They want freedom. They want to feel that their labor means something, that their place in the world means something, that their ability to exist is is predicated on mattering and having some value in this world, and while we may go across it in different ways, and yes, there are bad people out there, they do bad things. I'm not gonna, I'm not kumbayaing the world, but I do think that the average person is just a good old bloke trying to get through the day without having a meltdown. And I think we can all identify with that. So I would say combat it with kindness, the best of your ability. Take no shit. Don't take no shit. But try to be as the ability to listen. You know, there's the old adage, like you have two ears and one mouth, right? Use your ears more than the mouth. And I find more often than not, you can at least get through your day in a way, in a manner that is far more um, easy and peaceful and filled with tranquility than the opposite and if you do come across someone who is uh, a bigot or someone and and all forms of niceness have not worked or they're harming someone else end it in the most efficient manner possible and then try to be nice but but protect yourself protect others and and protect your soul by not giving in to hate I think that's that would be my big takeaway from that so um, try What I try to do is stepping away from the internet and going out somewhere else and make a point of smiling at them, make a point of saying hello to them, make a point of compliment, complimenting them in a respectful manner. And I think you might come away with a slightly different viewpoint on the impending doom or lack thereof of our current society. I do think doom is coming, but I don't think it's coming from uh, evangelicals. I think it's coming from the, the corporate overlords that rule everything okay and speaking of corporate overlords our next question what do you think of mars trips with people on ships they say it's possible in five to ten years would you go well i don't have a lot of information or knowledge on space travel to mars Um, my limited understanding is that it seems to be largely been advanced by people like Elon Musk and Jeff Brazos. And so to that, I would say when they have the capacity for their cars to stop blowing up or driving into walls or for their, for their business to not drive out of business, um, local shops and, and, and mom and pop, um, entrepreneurships, then perhaps I might have more faith or trust in them. But, as of now, I think what we have is petulant children with far too many resources, zero social skills, and zero morality. And frankly, I think that I would not trust my life or the life of my loved ones to those kinds of people until there is a deeply proven track record. Uh, Mars, to my understanding, is not inhabitable. I don't know if that if we could terraform Mars, first off, I don't know if we could terraform Mars. Secondly, I don't know what kind of impact that would have on the rest of the cosmos if suddenly this planet had gravity. I mean, I don't think we've thought that through. And if we're talking about living in a non-gravity Mars and like some sort of space systems, um, I don't know. Nothing about that seems appealing to me. I've seen The Martian, I've seen movies, I've seen, I've seen Total Recall. I, don't, I just don't think this ends well for us. So, um, plus, I, I think you know, I, I was born here on Earth. And um, I I would rather I would rather water my own garden than try to seek greener grass is my general philosophy on life. Um, I'm not always perfect at it. I do try hard at that. But I think that that is a good sort of mindset to have uh, as you approach your day. And I think that if you're looking to these new adventures, um, proceed with caution when you consider who's in charge of the saw and and let it play out a little bit maybe before you hop on that trip so no i I don't think so i'd rather stick here maybe if the earth was blowing up or something and there was like a legitimate chance of living that's a different matter but if it's just like to go like vacation or zip around mars and look at martians nah I'm, i'm cool i'll just i'll stick here i got i'd rather be doing magic all right uh next question how can we in our age of dependence and mind-destroying technology maintain self-control and mental mastery to reach beyond ourselves that's tough that's a real tough one i'm certainly not successful if you follow my twitter you can see that i so especially if we're talking about wrestling god damn you'd think that would learn by now but i got probably should do magic on that maybe give me to calm down a little bit um it's a tough question The only thing that I have been able to, to sort of come to more recently is I, I I spent a lot of time and I think all creative people are inherently romantics. And I spent a lot of time romanticizing the past, romanticizing my childhood or romanticizing a period before my childhood and, and lamenting why things weren't like that and um i've kind of i'm trying to let go of that with more frequency i'm trying to instead of instead of bemoaning that everyone's on their phone i've just started trying to leave my phone sitting in the other room more often i've tried to spend less time on instagram and facebook um uh, less twitter unfortunately but I'm, i'm working on it baby steps i i've i've tried to go to my DVD rack and put in a DVD rather than look to see if I can find it free on a streaming service. I've tried to um when I'm home at least, listen to, to albums versus using my phone. When it comes to technology, it's such a weird thing because when do we draw the line as to where technology is good versus when technology tipped over the edge, it's it's gonna vary for everyone. But I, I I think that there are small practices of holding on to a different way of life that we don't have to give up. We don't have to be on our phones all the time. It's hard. And if, and if there's a true addiction being formed, it might be worth treating it like you're an addict and doing the same kind. I, like I've talked about this on previous podcasts. I, I have such high admiration for the the, the um, AA program, and if you've ever done any reading about it, it's fascinating. And um, I, I think that many of us have addictions that we don't really call that, or we do in a sort of a colloquial sense, but not in the, the, the in the the need for an intervention sense. Like I've I've been thinking more recently, my phone probably has another year in it, maybe. And it's a tough thing because of my job and the over reliance on emails. But I've I've given some very serious thought about downgrading my phone into something a little bit more simple. I don't need all. I, I mean, what I would love to have on my phone is a very nice camera. I guess I I guess for work I need to have access to my email, and you know the ability to make a phone call. And the music aspect is nice also, although even even with that, I've been thinking more how that affects artists and I've been thinking like, you know, the the iPod, bringing back the iPod. I mean, that's not even like super ancient technology. That's just like, you know, 20 years ago or 15 years ago, but like even that wasn't so bad because you could buy a track off iTunes and and uh, again, I, I know that the artists are still getting fucked, but my point being is that I I think that there's a way to live where you just start saying to yourself if you're addicted to your phone maybe you need a, a less sophisticated phone maybe you need your phone near you less if you're if you're finding yourself addicted to social media perhaps delete the apps off your phone um, it is and and that's only just that only just holds off the the swelling tide. Of technology that inevitably is probably going to drown us all out the other thing though is um you know walks without any music are fucking profound you know sitting against a tree and like doing energy work that that really removes in a lot of regards um the necessity for that other stuff that rots your brain i give an example i just i just came back from the gym it when i'm recording this it's four four p.m um los angeles time and i went to the gym this morning and had a really hard workout because i'm trying to get back in shape and we walked to the grocery store we picked up some groceries and we walked back i haven't eaten today i had coffee this morning but it's four o'clock i haven't eaten today and again uh if anyone knows me and knows how much of a libertine i am along with sex to hear me say that i have not eaten yet that by four PM is absurd, but but what I found is that when I work out really hard, I'm not as inclined to junk food eat as much as I normally would. I'm not inclined to just eat to satiate myself because I already feel great from the workout. So you know, I, I and shortly after this podcast is over, my friend Nigel's coming over, and we're gonna do some jujitsu in the yard. So I may only eat one meal today, and I'm totally satisfied. I don't feel the least bit hungry, and. I, I think that that kind of living can be applied to the resistance of technology, wherein if you're taking walks without your phone, if you're, or one, uh, if you're spending more time in books, reading books instead of audio books or YouTube videos, um, one thing that I found that I really enjoy is reading out loud. For whatever reason, it makes me feel more part of the process. Like I'm not just a passive reader, but I'm engaged so I I I think it's that I mean here, another thing that we just did recently is we just had some friends over to listen to records like like we in the person who asked this question you and I did when we were kids like we we no no gimmick no event no dress code just hey come over and hang I think that it's imperative to us that we recognize that technology is mind destroying and it does wear at our self control and that it does rot our brain and our capacities for higher thinking and understanding. It's a it's a I I'm a big believer that social media should not be allowed for anyone under the age of 18. Strongly, strongly believe that. It's more addictive and far more deadly, in my opinion, than cigarettes. So I think that the first step is recognizing that it's a danger. Recognizing that it may not be inherently bad. But just like alcohol or drugs or driving, it carries a danger, it carrying, it carries risk. And once you recognize that risk, hopefully you can make some steps and changes and adjustments in your life to handle it responsibility. And if you get to a point where you feel like you can't handle the responsibility, then I think that there is no shame in admitting an addiction and making the adjustments to overcome that. We just had uh, Leah Martin-Brown from the band Evil Walks on, who, who is in, uh, went through the AA process for alcohol and has been sober for over two years now, I think. And I watch people like that. And obviously, the person who asked this question has no issue with, with drugs and alcohol. It's the least of their concerns. But I think that we we don't always have to look at it just those things as things that we might need additional help for. And so I would say for anyone, if you're feeling like you are just can't escape the grasp of technological addiction on your own, then don't be afraid to seek help. Don't be afraid to seek a, a sponsor. Don't be afraid to surround yourself with friends who will motivate you and, um, and uh, support you to live a less technologically dependent lifestyle. I hope that helps with everyone. It's hard. It's very hard. It, and it is dangerous. And I don't think most people um, understand how dangerous and how much our minds are being manipulated every time we log on. And if you do, you're like me and you do it anyway. It's very difficult. I, I, there's no easy answer other than to treat it like you would alcohol addiction or drug addiction or sex addiction for that matter. Uh, next question. Oh, speaking of sex. I am a woman, female, and I love sex and intimacy in a variety of ways. I, love, I especially love feeling sexual energy built in my body. I feel it all over my body. I see colors. I feel amazing. It's as though I am floating through space. I do not, however, enjoy when this feeling is interrupted by a genital orgasm. I find across the board that my partner or partners feel unworthy and are a little shook by this. I can have genital orgasm, but just prefer what I call full body orgasms. And no matter how I try to explain this, my partner or partners still wish to have for me to have a genital orgasm. I've had this experience with both men and women. I've not had sex with any non-binary folks, Uh, so it is not a men thing. How can I explain that I am perfectly satisfied sexually without genital orgasm? Please do not confuse this. with My partner's lack of respect for my boundaries because it feels deeper than that. My partner or partners respect my boundaries. They just really feel that there is something missing in them. That is a fantastic, fantastic question. And one um, that was emailed to me by a very lovely alum of the show. And I wanted to make sure that I not only, uh, Posted and read it as written because I thought they did a very excellent job of explaining the situation that they would like me to ponder. I gave this one a little bit of thought because um, it's different from me. And so I'm not, I don't have a, a natural familiarity to it. But then I, as I thought about it more, I, I did come to the realization that I think that one of the issues, one of the main issues, is that we are, by our, the way we built our society a goal-driven culture? We are all about the end game. We're all about the finish line. We're all about the the, the payoff, payoff. And I think that in that cultural change or that cultural environment, we can't we can't divide that from how we interact with our partners during sex. So if we are a culture where it's not about the drive, it's about getting to the destination. If we're a culture that's, that's not about, uh, going to do the work at the gym, but you know, how you look in the mirror or or when you get to your weight loss goal, if we're a culture that is, um, you know, thinks that dating means you must marry, otherwise it's a failure because again it's all about the end goal then then that's going to translate into our into the bedroom i think that i'll speak for myself as a man i and i've again i've mentioned this on the podcast before that for the longest portion of my life and and even still still today to some degree i measured my value on sexual prowess um other people do it by like you know how many abs they have and and yet other people do it by how much power they amass or how much money they have or how nice their car is but this culture that we've built has taught people and brainwashed people into believing that that the end goal is what matters Um, and everything leading up to it is just sort of a waste of time until you get to the destination which frankly to me is a is an incredibly unsatisfying Way to live. And I think more and more people are starting to see that and they're starting to realize that there is value in earning something. There is value in the journey and the lead up and the struggle sometimes. The other thing, as it relates more specifically to sex, is that we have a piss poor education system as it relates to sex. Um, we don't understand how our own bodies work. We don't understand uh, how our bodies feel good. We don't understand how our partner's bodies feel good. We don't even know what our partner's bodies do. I just learned that there is an A-spot. Well, actually, that's not true. I had heard about an A-spot in a woman a few years ago, but I didn't really know much more about that until I saw some Instagram videos on it. I'm 40, almost 42 years old, and I would like to think of myself as a pretty gracious lover, and yet there's whole parts of the anatomy that you just don't know because you're never taught it. And at a certain point you feel too embarrassed to ask. And so I think that a lot of people think they, a lot of people's education on porn has either come from traditional movies where everyone is romantic and their hair is perfectly in place after this beautiful, sensationally beautifully shot and filmed and lit uh sensual moment of sexual exchange. And then they, you know, they have a cigarette afterward or pornography, where like, it's, it's, it's more carnal, it's more aggressive, and it ends with a, a cum shot on a person's face or back or what have you. And if those are your two measures by which you understand sex, then, then more, more often than not, your idea of what sex is supposed to be combined with the culture you were raised in is going to lead you to think that the only way to be successful is to give your partner an orgasm. I mean, I remember it's not talked about as often now, which is maybe a sad indictment of something else. But I remember for years, people talked about the mutual orgasm. Do y'all remember that? Like, like when everyone would go on and on about my, me and my partner, we orgasmed together. We orgasmed at the same time. Okay. I have had many partners in my life. And, and I think I've had some pretty great sex and, and the, the times that I've had mutual orgasms, I can count on probably one hand. It's there's just, there's just a misconception about sex as a whole that we just don't really understand what it is, how it is and how it's supposed to work. And so even if one has a partner as communicative as you, and they're as accepting as your partner and partners are sometimes still that ingrained um learned idea is very hard to shake i think another problem is that for i don't know how real this is i can't speak to this uh, intelligently but there's but at least in media there seems to be this idea that like women fake orgasms and so um and and men can fake orgasms too i've done it like once or twice uh but but because there's this sadly there's this inherent distrust in sexual exchange even by people we love the most there always seems to be this doubt in the back of our mind that maybe they're being nice maybe they're just telling us something we want to hear because it makes us feel good because it makes us feel um like we accomplished what we meant to accomplish and if anyone has any inherent or, or ingrained um fears or self-doubt then that self doubt is going to be amplified when you don't when the result that you saw on television or the internet didn't happen as promised, um, even under the best circumstance. So I love this idea of what you are talking about. This idea because because what it sounds like to me, as I interpret it, is that you enjoy the ride. No pun intended. You enjoy the journey. One thing I was I was thinking about when I was thinking of this question. Was is how much I loathe the term foreplay, because in the way that we express it and the way that we think about it, it's like stuff before sex. Because we we as a Western culture seem to think of sex as as generally genital penetration or oral, and and even then sometimes some people don't even consider that. And so when you have just such sort of a a poor basic understanding of what the sexual experience is and you think that oral sex or kissing or touching is before sex and not actually part of the entire sexual experience then you've compartmentalized aspects of this pretty beautiful energy exchange into something that it's not and i don't see how one could avoid thinking of it almost like a three act play like i do the foreplay that's act 1 uh we have the intercourse that's act 2 and then there's an orgasm that's act 3 and and that's just not truly the sexual journey that is possible so i love the the idea that for you it's that journey that is the the part that is so um enamoring that that it, it like the, the ability to see colors and, and, and have your body feel like it's floating. Like that's a legitimately like a spiritual experience. And so I, obviously every, every partner is different and every ability to communicate is different. But I think that if you can explain to your partner in spiritual terms, what the sensation feels like for you and why a genital orgasm might disrupt that because i I certainly feel less with partners but more like if i'm uh, embarking in self-love like almost a dis there sometimes can be this sort of dissatisfying feeling that follows a a genital orgasm if it's if you're rushing through it if you've got five minutes before you gotta hop on the train whatever it may be If, if it just becomes a thing that you do to pass the time rather than like a really engaged act solo or with a partner or partners then um I could see why when you're floating this like very disruptive spike and drop of, of chemical releases could, could take you out of the moment. Um, so I think what I would attempt is to explain to your partner specifically why the genital orgasm disrupts what you're feeling and how magical that feeling is and and the deep connection that that is involved in it and i think the other thing is assuring them that if you want a genital orgasm that you're capable of having one with or without them and and you'll do so as you would like and that it's your choice that and i think that's the, really the most important part like it's your choice you're choosing to experience this this energy exchange. In a very specific way. Everyone chooses to experience it in their own way. Sometimes romantically. Sometimes kinky. Sometimes with one partner. Sometimes by yourself. Sometimes with multiple partners. Sometimes at the same time. There's a million different ways to experience this journey. And for you, a general orgasm is kind of a disruption. So I think trying to explain it in those terms. So that they understand that, that for you... Them, what they do leading up to that moment, or what they do in every other aspect, with the exception of that moment, is what makes you feel like you're floating on 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 the air. And some, I I have I've, I've often said that the, that what is missing in this world is a, an enchanted view of it. And so, perhaps a little bit of poetic flourish in your explanation could go a long way. If you could help them understand how beautiful what you experience is, it might help them appreciate it and not feel like, or this is true for anyone, that you're just being nice or you're just trying to make them feel better. Or there's something that they're not doing because everyone secretly really wants this thing. I think that that would go a long way. I think that would certainly go a long way to, making them understand that it's not something that you're lacking or that they're not giving to you. You're just choosing to experience this in a completely different manner than they are. And I think that that holds value. and I think that's very beautiful. And I hope you can come back on the podcast uh, because I would love to hear more about this because I think that reframing, just like earlier, we're talking about magic. And the use of technology and magic i think that we should experiment with sex and sexual energy exchange in the same manner to get different sensations from it because while i noted at the top of the podcast that i do have a sort of a uh, i put a little distance between me and, and groups that tend to focus too much on sex magic sex is inherently a magical practice and whether you choose to give it out to multiple people in a casual setting or whether you choose to keep it intimate or wherever in between. I think that it's important to understand that there's a lot of different ways that we can drive sensation from it and experiences from it. And I think through experimentation, we are able to achieve and find not only what we like and what we don't like, but really true ways of exploring this infinite practice. Um, it, it is truly pretty spectacular it's not just a physical sensation thing when you really think about what you're doing and so i I would go at it from that perspective find what resonates with them as spiritual and frame it within that context of your choice on how you choose to experience this thing and how it makes you feel afterward and they may have it may Quell any uh, Insecurities they may have And it may help them To feel like They're not Holding something from you They're giving you Exactly what you want And that's the way You want to experience sex So hopefully that helps With uh, your question And we should definitely Have you back on Because you're a very Insightful person And I I desperately feel Like the world Needs a better Sense of sex education Because it's uh, It's a mess right now Unfortunately All right, so now we come to our last question, and I want to, before I get to it, I just want to thank everyone who's asked a question today. I hope that I've done a a satisfactory job addressing them and answering them in a thoughtful manner, and I hope that it spawns more questions, and maybe, perhaps, if there are new questions that come from this, we could do another one of these sometime, maybe close to Christmas. So, my last question directed at me is, what new ideas for things do you have uh, to do next in life? um i don't know if i have new ideas i think i have ideas that i've always thought about that i'd like to do more of i came to this realization in my late 30s that most of the things that i like i've liked my whole life the kind of music i like the kind of way the ways i like to dress you know like if you would have seen me at 19 i other than being a little thicker and and having a bit longer hair i am not drastically a different person than i was when i was 19 20 17 25 in some ways i've matured but like as far as like an aesthetic and as far as like a, the way i like to live life and the things i'm interested in those things really haven't changed i still love poetry i love wine i love hikes i love nature i love rock music and goth dancing uh, metal um vegan food uh coffee and walks with friends um fall christmas time i mean just just i am who i am and so it's for me less about new ideas and more about allocating the proper time to the things and the ideas that i already hold uh important to me that i always uh, that i already hold as meaningful and to spend more time doing those things Like I mentioned earlier with the question about the over-reliance on technology, uh, I'm at a point in my life, and I think this is one of the values of getting older, where I just simply feel less concern about staying relevant. I had this conversation with one of my friends where I came to the realization that when you are young... You either look up to the generation before you and seek to emulate it, or if it's disdainful to you, you seek to replace it with optimism and hope of that time when it comes. But when you get to a certain point of your life, you're on the back end of that, and you will become more and more irrelevant with every passing day, culturally. And so I kind of am embracing that. I'm okay with that. You know, I'm okay with not needing to come up with new ways of doing things i like some of the old ways of doing things and i and i think that um it's subversive to hold on to older things of value in a culture that is disposable and single serving and so maybe that is new maybe that in itself is a new idea but i find that there are certain things that i really like and i think hold value in life or at very minimum are meaningful to me and i would like to spend more time doing those things and less time doing things that i don't really enjoy but i just feel like i need to do because i feel like i need to do it or because i have a latent addiction to it or because i'm being pressured by society to do it i don't think that that matters i don't think that that's necessary um not that having new ideas are that i just the place that i'm at in my life it's less about new ideas and more about spending more quality time with the ideas that just are a little starved at the moment you know i'm gonna i'm gonna keep making films and i'll keep doing podcasting in one form or another i'm sure and i will um you know i'll, I'll do other art experiments like i i, I partnered with a. Uh, whitney dinnerworth the other few weeks ago to do a cool little visual art audio presentation that he shot and edited skillfully and masterfully and that was based on a a, a piece of lyrics actually that i had written for a band that never occurred that i transformed in the prose and so that was cool i'd like to do more of that and i'd like to write poetry more again not a new idea just something i tend to neglect neglect write more um Watch better quality movies, listen to better quality music, take longer, more meaningful, thoughtful hikes, do more magic, like I spend time with friends, commune more. I don't know. I the new doesn't interest me at all right now. I'm, I'm quite bored with new, and I'm and I'm kind of more interested in in things that have been there that just aren't getting worn as often as they should be. So that perhaps is a new idea, but it's, it's definitely the place I'm at in my life. I'm, I'm too old to be, to be new. I'm not new. I'm like an old classic car. You know, I need a little bit more maintenance. I can be temperamental, but I'm not, I'm not going to have a lot of new features going forward. I'm, I'm not at that point in my life anymore. And I'm frankly, I'm, I'm really quite Okay with that, and in, in fact, it brings me quite a bit of joy and, and tranquility. So I hope that answers your question. Um, if perhaps if I come up with something new and some new idea, I will share it and and I'll share it with the rest of y'all. Um, in the meantime, I want to thank everyone who submitted a question. Thank you so much, everyone who did. You you guys are my favorite people in the world, um, and and I love talking to each. Each one of you every single person who submitted a question i i have a very uh on some level or another a personal relationship with and i I think that um that's because we're we're cut from the same cloth even even in our differences that we are the kind of people who who have who hold value important to them and who are thoughtful and who are um willing to explore difficult subjects and topic matters and are willing to go against the grain, are willing to put out their art or their skills in the way that they see fit and not necessarily the way that's most popular or gardeners, the most followers or certainly makes the most money even to some degree. So I I want to thank you all because I I do think that the people who ask these questions, this is, this is the counterculture to be thoughtful, to be uh, a, a deeper thinker, to be intelligent, to question the status quo. These are so the antithesis of our current accepting culture of whatever, you know, label you've adopted and what, and, and sort of cookie cutter behavior that to, to question that, to seek to answer that, to seek to explain that, to seek to reframe it, to look at it in a different manner, to live life slightly differently. That, is what we need more of. And I hope that you all through this Q and a have uh, been inspired by it. And, and I, I, I hope that you're inspired to, to do this with your friends, to have them, you know, you don't need a podcast to do this. Just ask your friends, ask you some questions and answer them. It, it'll get you thinking in ways that you probably might not have been thinking before. And, and your responses might surprise your friends or maybe make them think about this in a way differently than the way you did. The communication and, and um, community are so desperately important, but they can't just be surface level accumulation of followers. It's got to be something deeper than that. And these are the kind of conversations, the kind of con- conversations that are born from questions like these that, that deepen bonds beyond just surface level drinking or friendship or even romanticism. So I, I want to thank everyone once again. Uh, I love you all very, very much. And I want to thank you all listening at home for for s- supporting this podcast, supporting the guests, most importantly, supporting the guests and their endeavors and their create, uh, creative projects. Because I hear people complain all the time about shit that sucks, but there's good stuff out there. You just got to find it and pay attention to it and support it. If you want to rage against a world that seems ever more oppressive, push back against it And reject it with your whole heart, your whole mind, your soul, and your guts. Scream no into the void and live your life and find people who want to live their life in accordance to the way you think the world should be lived. You can't change others very often. You can change your own world. And for those who are practitioners of magic, shaping our reality is the whole point of it. So I I urge you and and, um, support you in this endeavor. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for those who submitted uh, questions. And until next time, gold rings on you all.